You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Linda Johnson didn't just need a win in 1964. He needed a big one. And the way to get it was not to debate his opponent. They have trouble making an argument if we don't argue with it. They can't argue with themselves. My own instinct completely. I would remind you that extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice. So I want to talk to you today and let me remind you about three places that moderation where we began to build the great society is no virtue. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. 200 million strong, devoted to God. William E. Miller was running for vice president in 1964, and one of the things that he liked doing was playing bridge, usually with reporters. He was an unknown congressman, picked mostly to be a bumblebee in Lyndon Johnson's ear during that campaign. He was also the chair of the Republican Party. And on this point, I want the record unmistakably clear. A Catholic. It's 64. Democrats had just run John Kennedy in 1960. All of these reasons. When he was nominated and selected as his party's improbable nominee. A selfless commitment to principle. It was in the midst of a convention where so much was going on with the top candidate, Barry Goldwater. And forceful leaders, Senator Barry Goldwater. A couple days later, the newspapers started printing articles. Oh, by the way... Who is William E. Miller? He'd make some speeches. He'd appear at those party unity events to smooth over Barry and the rest of the GOP at times. And he'd keep playing bridge. Finally, a reporter asked him, Hey, Bill, would you take a bet on the 64 election? No, he said. I'm partisan, but I'm not stupid. I love this part. The finest instrument for good government this country has ever known. Why was he chosen? Well, the usual reasons, but as Theodore White imagined in his making of the president in 1964, yeah, he was Catholic, check the box. Yeah, he was conservative, check the box. Those were probably cover reasons. The real reason was because it would drive LBJ crazy. In fact, it's the only public comment that nominee Barry Goldwater makes for why he picked Miller, is that he will take on LBJ. He'll really put it to him. 1964 was a different kind of election. It's going to be, with hindsight, a blowout. LBJ was able to, as Theodore White said, pick his victory. Pick how he wanted to win the presidential election. Will you join in the battle to build the great society? I know that sounds crazy, but there's there are some strategy choices that opened up with a nominee like Goldwater. Did he want to get enough southern states to save face as a southerner himself? 
or did he want to make more inroads into the GOP North? I faced the question. Uh, we've got a lot of stuff in which we found Miller off base. I mean, right here on the phone call with Lyndon Johnson as Labor Secretary, you basically get an admission. He has no interest in debating Goldwater. Also Goldwater, 60,000 misfits in the Army. Miller on this immigration and so on and so forth. Now, my own personal reaction is right now that, that we've got nothing to gain by my arguing with Miller. Or Miller. I wouldn't, and I've asked my cabinet people, please don't do it. They do it. Freeman and you'd all do it, but I sure wouldn't. We're not going to get a debate of issues or anything, a kind of argument, directly in this campaign. It's going to be two sides speaking to their bases and bashing each other. It would be different if Lyndon Johnson was facing, say, Nelson Rockefeller in 64. He'd have to fight for votes. He could actually lose that election. He'd have to make up for probably losing New York State, maybe New Jersey. Maybe you know, It might be the same with Henry Cabot Lodge or Pennsylvania Governor Bill Scranton. Lyndon Johnson didn't have to really fight. I'd be above him if I were you, and I'd talk about what we stand for and what we're doing. And- so it was more about shaping that victory get a mandate, get congressional support, get new congressmen in, get support for his future programs. Can Lyndon Johnson start talking about great society when he's running up against a more competitive candidate? The 64 election allowed him to be that way. Important point to make, because many of us know the history with Lyndon Johnson, his personality. He never quite stopped fretting about the possibility of Goldwater when there's phone calls of him on the election day in 64, looking at Texas precincts, and they're not getting the votes that they expected and saying, oh, we lost this, we lost this. You're never going to lose that personality that Johnson has. But as the overall strategy of the campaign, yeah, it was a victory type campaign and less of a underdog fighter type campaign. There was always fears that there would be this secret electorate that would come out for the very conservative Goldwater. We know that in the future, conservatives would take over the GOP party. Reagan would be very popular in 76, nearly beat Ford for the nomination. Reagan would win in 1980. Reagan's a Goldwater supporter. When the RNC was doing polls, they started asking, okay, you're saying you're not going to vote for Goldwater because that was the resounding opinion of most of the polls. Almost to the point that they didn't want to do the polls anymore. Okay, so you're saying you're not voting Goldwater. Do you know anyone who is? In one case, the campaign claimed that 45% of people said they knew someone else that was voting for Goldwater. So there's this secret group of voters that were going to come out in the election. And as we know, at the election of 64, that is not what happened. The voice of the people was heard in the land. 68 million citizens of the United States go to the polls to exercise their cherished franchise, and an overwhelming mandate is handed to Lyndon Baines Johnson, who becomes 36th president of the United States. Goldwater does win his home state and several southern states in a reaction to civil rights. Maybe up against Rockefeller, Lyndon Johnson goes for a 51-48 victory. No sweeping promises. Keep the faith. Keep the same guy in charge. That all changed at the Cow Palace at San Francisco. A little outside the city, where, in a New Deal-constructed cattle show venue, as every reporter pointed out at the time, the Republicans went far right to try to change some of the inherent policies of that New Deal. Shouted down their own party's New York Governor, Nelson Rockefeller. He lost credibility among the GOP with his 
near democratic policies and his recent divorce. Extremism in the defense of liberty is no vice, he shouts. The conventioners cheer, and somewhere, Miller is picked and forgotten about. The general election strategy, if there is one, for Goldwater is to get Lyndon Johnson mad, to get him off his game. They know that this can be done. He's not polished like John F. Kennedy. So what you have is a little bit of a cartoonish election, a little bit of a non-election. On the one side, they're trying to get LBJ to say something stupid, to get him to explode, to show his true self. But as Theodore Wife points out, because LBJ wasn't responding to what Goldwater was throwing out there in all the bait. I can't argue with himself. It became a campaign that was talking to no one, two sides talking maybe at each other. That if we'll just uh, talk about uh, the danger of a woman having a two-headed baby and men yep. becoming sterile and drinking contaminated milk and these things, that they'll know who they ought to be scared of without our ever saying so. And that's the thing we ought to keep up. LBJ's team at the ad agency DDB savages an image of Goldwater with that Daisy ad and other ads, which many people who knew him didn't think that was him at all. But it's the way that he ran his campaign, and it was pretty easy to target. So you really just had two campaigns, the one saying, I don't need to talk to you because you're too extreme, and the other one saying, we're not interested in having a traditional, we want to cut taxes by 5% election we want to have an election about really changing things and changing our own party as well as the nation. In a way, it was all planned out in advance, with just one part missing. In the Oval Office, November 1963, John F. Kennedy was gathered with Ken O'Donnell, Ted Sorensen, RFK, Larry O'Brien, and the talk shifted to politics before he's to leave for Texas. It could be fun if it was Barry, Kennedy says, per Richard Reeves' account. Kennedy liked Goldwater, and he liked him as a Republican candidate because he knew he was unelectable. RFK says Goldwater's not very smart. He will destroy himself. But not too soon, we hope. Build him up a little. Give him praise. Specifically, JFK tells his aides, build him up a little. Give him praise. Don't waste any chance to praise Barry. Don't mention the others. The others Kennedy was talking about was Romney, Rockefeller, Lodge, all of these other cats, Scranton. He didn't want to run against them. He's particularly concerned about Romney, Midwestern, Mormon, and not that there were Mormons in the electorate, but that people would respect his religious values generally. People love that God and country stuff, JFK says. But give me Barry, I won't even have to leave the Oval Office. His admiration for Goldwater was mutual. Goldwater said, I liked him from the very start. Speaking of Kennedy, he was an easy fellow to meet, great sense of humor, and it stuck out in front of him, so you couldn't miss it. Per Goldwater's account, and a few Kennedy aides, as described in Richard Reeves' book, President Kennedy, great one. In fall 63, Goldwater had talked with President Kennedy about traveling around the country, about having a real debate, having several of them in several cities, something else. There would be no moderators, just Goldwater and Kennedy. They would pop out of Air Force One, they'd travel together, and have an honest, liberal versus conservative debate in America. Now, could that have really happened? 
it's very believable that this conversation took place. Would his political advisors had gotten to him first and said, don't do that? We just don't know. Um, that's from Goldwater decades later in the 1980s, confirming it. Sadly, JFK would not be alive for those debates. And it was his vice president, Lyndon Johnson, who would run in 1964 in his stead. And there would be no television debates. Now, that seems strange now. that How can you get away with not debating your opponent? But it was pretty easy in 64, really. I was asked by Justin Miller on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group on Facebook. Why didn't Lyndon Johnson debate Goldwater? And the real answer is raw politics. It served him no political advantage to get up on a TV set with Goldwater at the same time. No political advantage. He was in double-digit polls ahead of Goldwater. Yeah, but then the next question you have to ask, well, wouldn't he be forced to do it? Because a candidate today, if they do not debate, gets the um, opponents in a chicken suit, right? Uh, coming to their rallies and, and in reporters criticizing and things like that. But in 64, no, it was a different political culture, I would say. And you have to remember, the Kennedy-Nixon debates that had taken place in 1960 were novel. It was somewhat that TV sets were appearing in in homes. And the Kennedy-Nixon debates do come as a bunch of other minor political debates, like in primaries and things like that, are starting to happen on TV. But also it was the anniversary, somewhat anniversary, of the Lincoln-Douglas debates. So Kennedy sort of uses that as a, a way to introduce the topic. The other thing to understand is, even though Nixon is vice president, people didn't know vice presidents well then. So you kind of had two candidates that needed to be introduced to the public, both Kennedy and Nixon in 1960. So there was this opening for, let's have a debate where we can both be introduced in American living rooms. And Kennedy sends a letter to Nixon. And Nixon is agreeable. And I think his opinion is that he had to. He had to. Different in 64. You didn't have that novelty anymore. 1960 had no incumbent president. Now at 64, you have an incumbent president in office. Still, you think there would have been more pressure, and there is a little bit, particularly the New York Times. Here's what the New York Times says. Especially after the 1964 campaign was reduced to dismissal and derision, debates should happen to give the campaign more intellectual force. This is the New York Times in September 1964, Goldwater makes a September Fenway Park speech in Boston and asks Lyndon Johnson directly for a debate, to debate him. The New York Times says that case has merit, that that request has merit. So there's going to be articles in June, articles in September about this. The comment that we get from Lyndon Johnson, he does not directly answer the invitation for debate, but he does tell a reporter, I don't think any president should debate. He might reveal secrets. And that tells us that at least for Lyndon Johnson, incumbency at least was being used as the excuse. Incumbent president can't debate. He didn't directly refuse. The president sent word through aides that he would not participate. And not only did he not lose for not debating Goldwater, he won big. It wasn't a serious issue in voters' minds um, to say, I'm not voting for LBJ because he won't debate.
1988, and reporters are having breakfast when Michael Waldman, journalist at Newsweek, speaks. Put down the croissants, boys. I've got an idea. The group had been talking potential running mates for then-Vice President George Bush, Vice President under Reagan. He's a little New England. He needs a boost. And at this time in August 1988, it's hard to believe he's being crushed in the polls by Massachusetts Governor Dukakis, who is the Democratic candidate. Dukakis just picked Lloyd Benson, a Texas senator, conservative, Texas and New England together. What a great ticket. The press is eating it up. What's Bush going to do in New Orleans now? Who's he going to pick? And Bush hadn't picked Quayle yet at this point. So Waldman says to the group, he should pick Reagan. Poof. Okay, Mike, good one. You forgot about the 22nd Amendment. Can I get a muffin and some coffee? No, 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 Waldman says. Not Reagan Bush. Bush Reagan. Reagan runs for vice president. Yeah, Mike, still, 22nd. He served two terms. He can't run. But it doesn't say vice president in the 22nd Amendment. It just says no one who is president twice can be elected again. Think about it. Reagan is VP solves all of Bush's problems. Ah, you're dreaming, Mike. Just half a cup, thanks. I don't want to be jittery like Waldman over here. He delivers California easy. He walks with blue collars. All those conservatives that Bush isn't worried about hanging on to, he's got them. And he delivers Republicans a big win, a compliant Congress. 1964 style, okay? You sure about the 22nd, Mike? He says, I am sure. And they part ways. And of course, it's not Waldman that puts it out there. It's all the other papers, some of which are the reporters at breakfast. Washington Post headline screens. The GOP's hottest ticket. The Christian Science Monitor joins uh, with the Post article and the breakfast. Of course, Bush isn't even considering this, making Reagan his VP. I doubt Reagan was considering it. Journalists kept it alive for about a week or so. It would put Bush's opponents into sputtering incoherence, the newspaper said. In the end, Bush picked Quayle. He didn't need Reagan to win. And the rest of 1988 is history. You get to 2000. Clinton has served two terms, and it happens again. I read an old CNN page, now stripped of its image JPEGs. That's how old the website is. Leading most polls, CNN said, George W. Bush could sit back and pick anyone for VP. He doesn't need a flashy candidate or one from a battleground state. He picked Wyoming's bland Dick Cheney, who can add experience to the ticket. Okay, an interesting side note. It wouldn't stay a lead in the polls that George W. Bush could just be comfortable about. That entire 2000 election, it would be real close on election day, officially down to 500 votes in the popular, um, in the, in, in one state, I should say. And Cheney did help his unique case, but I'll leave that as the aside. This old webpage, CNN.com article stripped of its images says, Gore needs a jump start. Who would be a better choice than the charismatic and skilled politician of his time, Bill Clinton? This is Michael Dorff's article. He's actually, like in the 1988 case, quoting another journalist idea. That, of course, is Thomas Friedman. He believes that the 22nd does not contain language about the vice president. And that's true. Dorff, like Waldman, is, is right there. 
others will bring up. I brought it up previously when this discussion happened years ago on this podcast. The 12th Amendment is an anchorman constitutionally in this. Because the 12th Amendment, essentially paraphrasing, says anyone who's ineligible to be president is ineligible to the office of vice president. But Dorf dismisses this. The 22nd applies to election only. The 12th is talking about ineligibility like age. Like you can't make a 16-year-old your vice president. Residency. You can't Napoleon's brother who just arrived from Spain and is living in Philadelphia. You can't make him your VP. They have to be eligible to be president. But he says it's limited to that type of eligibility. 12th doesn't apply. Why not, as Dorf says, as Freeman says, run a Gore-Clinton ticket? Now, there is no way this is going to happen. Gore and Clinton, by the way, are having some pretty heavy arguments at this time. The campaigns weren't getting along with the White House. uh, And Gore specifically goes to Los Angeles in 2000 and says he wants to run as his own man. He ends up incidentally picking Lieberman, who's kind of like a Cheney pick. But he picks him to, to, to get away from Clinton a bit because Lieberman had criticized Clinton's conduct. So just the other day, Larry Larvin, a listener, brought a recent article to my attention. Larvin, by the way, has his own Ukraine news website. And it's simply ukrainenews.info. Ukrainenews.info is Larry's page about everything going on in Ukraine. But he sent me a note from uh, Philip Allen Lacovara that suggests Biden could choose Obama. And Lacovara is a former solicitor, and he's got some knowledge. This is the argument he makes. So, Larry, thanks for all this. I addressed this topic previously, and I'd be happy to discuss it again. And uh, before we get to the merits, I'll talk about one more. Um, let's talk about the first historical consideration is that this event, talking about running a two-term president for vice president, has happened a lot. Melissa Kane explains on Twitter, also pointed out that even in 1960, there was talk Melvin Lard, one of um, Nixon's good friends and aides, suggested that he run Eisenhower for vice president and explain that, oh, yeah, you can do it. And Eisenhower's asked about it on a press conference, and he says, hmm, I don't think I can do that, but get back to me on that, which is just kind of an Eisenhower way of dealing with reporters. But he wasn't really serious about it, is my point. Thank you, Melissa. That's a great point. So this is going back, and then we have 1988, the breakfast table. Then you got 2000. Then in 2016, um, Hillary Clinton is asked briefly, would you pick Bill for vice president? Both Clintons thought that this couldn't happen. Now, here we are in 2023 and looking at the 2024 election. There are some who are saying, well, drop Harris and put Obama in the ticket. Now, again, look at how far the journalists are sometimes from the politicians. There was no way Bush was going to pick Reagan. There was no way Gore was going to pick Clinton. I don't know about Nixon and Eisenhower, but I suspect in all three cases, there's always a need to be your own man, so to speak. And you don't want to have the former president on the ticket, though it's constantly the talk of journos. Now to the merits. And the first I want to say on the outset is my position on this, which I've outlined earlier and years ago on the podcast. But I said now I come from a, you know, judicial pragmatism, if you ask me, and this can't happen. This can't happen. But after I read some articles in a very lengthy Minnesota Law Review article, 
the twice and future president um, from the 90s and rewritten in 2016. It looked at every possible angle. I'm still a no, but I could see some loopholes there. I guess anything's possible legally. But just I believe that running a former president who served two terms would be seen as too obvious an end run, a constitutional end run around the 22nd Amendment, especially now that the 25th exists, which it did not exist. And therefore, the authors of the 22nd Amendment could not plan for what's in the 25th, which allows a president to resign and the vice president becomes president. Now, that was always, I I suppose I could get corrected on that. It was always the case that if something happens to the president, the vice president, vice president acts as president, that the the 25th made the mechanism so clear. It would be not hard for some agreeable fellow to run as president, have the former president run as vice president, and then that person resigns. A person that's now violating the 22nd would be in the presidential office. I don't think you get to do that. Amendments are part of the Constitution, just as the original language is. We tend to think of something that's written in the 1950s that the people aren't framers. Yes, they are. That 22nd is just as valid as anything passed in the Bill of Rights. You know, it might not be free speech level values. I get it. But it's just as important in terms of the legal mechanism. You must observe it at a higher level than statutory law and have a person elected president who has served twice. They decided that desire to prevent another FDR, heavily supported by Robert Taft of Ohio, with all that legislative intent, the framers of that amendment would have been very mad if, say, Roosevelt was still alive and they were able to run him as VP to get around the amendment they've written. It is not the intent of the 22nd. Not sure at what point it comes to Supreme Court. Probably a case about balloting and states. So it probably comes early while there's still a chance for the party to switch if it makes this choice at a convention. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow. Okay, so here's the text of the 22nd Amendment. No person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice, and no person who has held the office of president or acted as president for more than two years of a term to which 
some other person was elected president, shall be elected to the office of president more than once. Okay, so here's the relevant line of the 12th Amendment. But no person constitutionally ineligible to the office of president shall be eligible to that of vice president of the United States. Okay, so in my opinion, that does it. You can't be vice president if you're ineligible to be president. You can't be president. You can make a case that ineligibility in the original writing of the 12th Amendment only applied to age, residency, factors like this. But I believe the framers in the 1950s added one more requirement. You can't be twice elected. Because the only way, the only avenue you have to become president in the normal sense Put aside special cases for a moment. In the normal sense, the only pathway to be president is to be elected. So that's just a limitation on being president by the only way a citizen can become president. You have cases, sure. You know, what about if someone's a Speaker of the House? A president could be made Speaker of the House. There's no constitutional provision about that. And what if they – one thing to note is that there was discussion at the time of when there was talk about this with Eisenhower, say, oh, we'd never do it. We'd never do Nixon-Eisenhower because if he ever uh, – if something happened to Nixon, he'd have to pass on it because of the 22nd Amendment and it would go to a Democratic Speaker of the House. Rayburn would become president. That was the thinking at the time, at least in the Republican circles. Could a VP become president by a president dying? Yes, they must be elected first. And that's the question under debate. Can they be, can they run an election ticket? I would argue that when you elect a ticket, right? When we elected Biden Harris, we elected Biden and we elected Harris with a contingency that she could be president. She was qualified to be president. Qualified could get political. Let's just say eligible to be president. You would not have that case. If you ran Obama for vice president, that would not be fulfilled. Ticket would be unconstitutional. Because when we vote for a vice president, we vote for a contingent president. That's my argument. Uh, Listen, I mean, there's a lot of disagreement. I would say constitutional scholars, it appears to me, a lot of them. I might have Posner. Don't think I have tribe on it. Most of them seem to lean towards, yeah, the text is very clear. And we're in this textual age where it's just the letter of the law. Yeah, if you read it that way and you could care less about what happens as a result or what people who were passing, you know, the American people in passing that amendment wanted to get done. The states, right, For especially for people that value states' rights, the states wanted this prohibition on a person who served two terms from not being president in the most easy avenue they could imagine. They don't want some loophole to make that person president. Verakova argues like, well, what about this? A president can be Speaker of the House. No rule there, I agree. And a Speaker is third in line of succession, to which I say, okay, That's a highly unusual scenario, not the way you normally read law, but okay. It's a highly unusual scenario. Never has happened before. There hasn't even been been a speaker become president yet. But yes, a president could become Speaker of the House, and then through the death of both the president and the vice president or resignation would then become um, in the line of succession is where I want to keep it. I don't think they become president. I think it gets challenged at the Supreme Court. I think they have to pass and go to the Secretary of the State in the end because of the 22nd. But 
The words do say in the 22nd, elected. Now, these arguments are all hypothetical. There, just in case you think that this hasn't been thought about, there's a Minnesota review law article that I'll have on um, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. I'll post a link to it and um, we'll get into that. It has every combination. I mean, the guy goes through everything you could possibly think of about this issue, including the points I've made. He doesn't agree. He says that ban is only on a person being elected. You can make him vice president. I argue for judicial pragmatism, even though it is there is there's a favoritism sort towards textual reading of things. Other even the current court, it's not absolute. There's there's a textual influence that Scalia and others brought to the to Supreme Court, but that's not um, absolute. A lot of different forms of analysis are being used. In looking at First Amendment, Second Amendment, and looking at Fourteenth uh, Amendment, the court is always looking at constitutional end runs. You know that freedom of the press or freedom from speech. Well, trying to call something not speech when it obviously is. You know whether something's online or whether it's on a soapbox. You're not going to get anywhere with that. So, getting around these constitutional end runs is part of what a justice does. That's what I think. Thanks so much, Larry Larvin, for that. Um, I don't think Joe Biden's going to pick Obama anyway. So as usual, when this talk occurs, it has nothing to do with where the political heads are. Okay, before I get on, I have two more questions to address, one of which I'm going to answer, I think, in a big way. The other one, I think, um, I feel a little wishy-washy about it. going to be kind of a half answer. Before I get to that. Could you do me a favor? Can you review My History Can Beat Up Your Politics, particularly on Apple Podcasts? Can you do that? It would be a great help to me, be a great help to the show. Um, every once in a while, I get a little slate of bad reviews. And look, there's nothing wrong with criticism of the show. This show over 17 years has improved as a result of people saying, hey, talk a little faster or things like that, you know, improve your production. Um, yeah, that's fine. But what we're getting to now is a zone of partisan politics out there where it's just like if you don't toe the line to a certain way, you get a one star. And, and that's what's going on. And it's not great for people who first come to the site, like a new potential listener, to just see that glaring one star. So if you feel strongly about the program, you like it, could you give us a review? It would really help a lot. Thanks so much. Um, Podcasts, other podcasts. You know, I continue to think that American Epistles, E-P-I-S-T-L-E-S, Epistles, Letters, does some great work. She hasn't been able to update as, as quickly, but there's doesn't matter. There's great backlist content on there um, where you can read about the effects of the Chinese Exclusion Act, Chinese immigration, about minors in West Virginia and their struggles and about the experience of being a slave, all of this stuff from real history from letters. I can't endorse that one enough. Here's another one I've been listening to, which I know it'll be strange. If you just want something funny, different, um, normal gossip is kind of, you know, I, I know you were going to think, I can't believe that Bruce is listening to the normal gossip. Like, not every episode, but um, – Vigilante Renovations is just a great episode there. If you can have, you know, the style is very different. You got to be, I'm a person who thinks that anybody's style of presentation is their own. So I'm cool with that. 
Long 70s podcast doing some great stuff. There is a two-part series on Americanization of Dixie based on a 1974 book. Long 70s, you're just going to get some really obscure topics, but it's an interesting talk about how the South and the North joined during the 70s. The South became more North. The North became more South, right? It's just this whole blending of things. And they go over the book. They're also critical of the book. It's, it's two people reading a book and talking about it. I like it. Entitled Opinions currently has two episodes up about artificial intelligence and how to approach artificial intelligence from a more philosophical point of view, but also giving you some of the tech terms that and concepts that you may not understand. And you don't have to be a computer programmer to understand what they're saying. Uh, it's Humanities in the Age of Artificial Intelligence and the Wilds of Artificial Intelligence. Both of them are good episodes. Road to Now, I highly recommend their interview. Ben and Bob interviewed Ken Burns and really got into the nitty-gritty of history-making, documentary-making. Great stuff. They're seven years now, Road to Now. I remember them when they were just this high. Okay. Ohio versus the world. First of all, congrats, Alex, on uh birth of your son. Congrats to you and your family. We await the next season, but one episode you got to listen to on Ohio versus the world is Ten Cent Beer Night about the experiment that the Cleveland Indians tried once and only once to have beer for 10 cents to bring people in and what happened, the dangerous event, potentially more dangerous event that occurred in Cleveland uh, during that game. I do listen to cautionary tales um, off, or off and on. It depends on the topic. Um, there's a great one. Both Ohio vs. the World and Cautionary Tales both have episodes about the Cleveland balloon disaster when it was decided to break the Guinness Book of World Records by releasing a certain amount of balloons and what happens. So actually, you can go to either podcast for that. I like my Mad Men podcast. You know, I continue to watch old episodes of Mad Men. If you're into that show, In a Snit is a pretty good program where they go into the episodes and they're up to season three. The feminist perspective, good to hear. This is not just a show about Don Draper, which sometimes, at least on a first watch, that's really how I watched it. And they also talk about women in history, some that you may not know during the episode. I, I like it a lot. I'll leave it there. There was an intriguing question on the Facebook discussion site, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion site on Facebook. Go there if you want. Uh, talk to other listeners of the program. It's been around since 2009. Uh, I think there's about 1,500 people ostensibly on it. Uh, Vera Catherine Wade asks me, does really ask the group, but no one had an answer, so I'll do my best. Does anyone know if there was ever a movement in America to declare a children's charter? This was declared in 1951 in Japan, similar to something that Herbert Hoover tried to introduce here that fizzled out. Thanks, Vera. I wasn't aware of it previously, but a children's charter would be essentially an agreement of principles endorsed by associations and really thousands of people across America lacking direct legal authority, but to be influential on law and policy nonetheless, to have a kind of moral force. Suffice it to say, this is very Herbert Hoover. The charter asks for, among other things, health protection for every child. 
prenatal, natal, and postnatal care for mothers, a safe community, an education, teaching in homemaking and parenting, safety from accidents, protection against child labor that stunts growth, regular dental care. And keep in mind, this whole charter applies to every child regardless of race or color or situation wherever he may live under the American flag. I note that at the time we're talking about Herbert Hoover's presidency, this includes the Philippines. Hoover completely endorses this attempt at a children's charter. Children are our most precious possession, he says. This charter condenses into words the fullest knowledge and the best plans for making every child safer, wiser, better, and happier. Now, just to show that Hoover isn't just saying that the charter's enough, he says, these plans must constantly be translated into action. No, it was never passed. No, it was never something that, say, Congress adopted or anything like that. But I note that Hoover, oft a conservative, oft seen that way, was not seen that way by all the conservatives of his time when he was president. He kind of adopted a sheen of a conservative later when Franklin Roosevelt becomes president, and Hoover is a key critic. You know, so they did make him um, Commerce Secretary. He was not Coolidge's favorite cabinet member. Coolidge was not super happy that he became the nominee, but there was nothing he could do about it because Hoover really was a force within the party. He could be seen as kind of a third way, and this charter is an example of it. The former mining company and government whiz kid wanted progressive goals, absent dictates of federal laws and what might be called alphabet agencies. Like there's not a direct call here for um, an American children agency or ACA or something like that. It could be contradictory in a lot of ways. You could be critical of it. But this is the kind of thing that Hoover would push for. Uh, Many in the uh, GOP in the 1920s found Hoover too progressive. He was a leaguer. He was an internationalist. He wanted action. He wasn't a, a passive person. Yet Hoover appears like a standpat because of everything that went on in the Depression and the steps that were called for were a bit too much for him. And you can be rightly critical because all of the things that I mentioned, uh, how do you do them without a more aggressive government? The Children's Charter of 1930 also calls for moral and spiritual education and training, things that might be appealing to the GOP party then and now, and to preserve his, it always uses the male gender, but it is speaking to boys and girls as children, to preserve his personality and his most, as his most precious right. What does that mean? Who cares? Why would a charter preserve a personality? Well, you've got to think about totalitarianism out there. Mussolini, Hitler at the time that we're talking, other places. Japanese are militarizing. And in America, we're going to preserve the individual. So that's in this charter as well. But besides that, it's some pretty big and possibly expensive promises. Healthcare from birth to adolescence. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. 
Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? (laughs) I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. (laughs) Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. It's prodding the creation of new government. It even calls for it directly. Relief and aid for children in poverty sanitary inspections, health departments at the county level, new rural schools where none exist. These are all things that are going to involve at least state or county spending, possibly federal. Because the argument on the right might be, parents take care of children. Society doesn't need to. The children's charter represents something that might be called a third way. It's Not quite what FDR is going to implement, but it's also not what some of the Stan Patters in his party would just have him do, just leave things be. To be fair, it's not just in the Republican Party in the 30s, it's also Democratic Party, particularly in the South, there's a kind of Stan Pattism as well. A children's charter also represents a movement that we described in the child labor episode years ago what we call the creation of children. One of the reasons that I wanted to call it that is that the child, in fighting child labor, it was necessary to create the concept of children as something in law and not just merely an extension of parents. Otherwise, the parent and otherwise, you've got the solution to the problem. If you don't want children to work, parents won't let them work. Well, that wasn't saving, you know, 10-year-old Pennsylvanias from working in the steel mines or nine-year-old newspaper boys. And then there's a whole concept of orphans and everything like that. And the concept of some of the states that didn't want to do anything about child labor, Alabama, Mississippi, I'm thinking, nonetheless had laws on their book that were very stringent about parental responsibility. For instance, a parent being idle and not disabled, but just deciding to be idle while their children were working in factories and sending them money. An all too common situation that the law, if not in, you know, was meant to address, if not enforcement mechanisms, which in some of these states were paltry, paltry amounts of inspectors to go check that the laws are being enforced. So you had people like, uh, this is a big issue for Hoover. You had people like him who were advocates for eliminating child labor even if part of the motivation for Hoover was more jobs for adults during the Depression. But by comparison to a hardcore, taking care of children is up to the parents mentality that defeated that child labor legislation, that defeated all attempts to have a child labor amendment. 
Hoover's uh, left of that. To my knowledge, no, the charter was not completed. I think other statements by the UN that might sort of replace it. And then there's aspects of American law that established uh, education. The Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 is going to regulate child labor really for the first time. Successfully, Wilson tried it and it was thrown out by the Supreme Court. You know, it's a point to make, though, about Hoover's crusade here that it takes until the late 1950s to really get serious federal support for basic education. It was always seen as a state problem. And I wonder, you know, I don't think that these are just uh, phony baloney stuff, these kind of charters and movements. I do believe that if Hoover was able to get more attention for his charter, maybe have it accepted by Congress as the goal, uh, you know, it provides a useful inspiration. Mike E. uh, wrote me, Hi, Bruce. I just finished Sean McMeekin's Stalin's War, which completely changed my view of World War II. On page 656, McMeekin writes, Viewed at a distance of three quarters of a century, it seems clear now that Churchill and Roosevelt became intoxicated with Stalin out of emotional shock and the Barbarossa invasion, only to awaken with a painful hangover once Hitler's armies went down in defeat. Even Truman, although never taken in as his predecessor, needed time to wake up to the threat of Soviet expansion before he put his foot down in Asia. Mike E. continues, It's clear in his, con- in his condition that Roosevelt had no business running for a fourth term in 1944, and his poor health played a role at Yalta. We know how Truman conducted himself upon him assuming the presidency in April of 1945, but I'm curious how FDR's previous VPs, Garner and Wallace, would have purported had they become president upon FDR's death in 1945. Were they clear-eyed, anti-communist? Would there have been some learning curve similar to Truman, considering how thoroughly the Soviets had penetrated FDR's White House staff and the State Department by that time. I enjoyed your podcast on Garner. Was he an ardent anti-Stalinist? Perhaps a possible discussion in your Vice's podcast series. Um, thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, we have the, the Vice Presidents of the United States that I've been doing on a different uh, different podcast. And I don't, I'm not a, a little bit analytical there, but I, it's a little different podcast where we talk about the lives of Vice Presidents. Hey, great points. Thanks, Mike. Uh, I have not read that book. I will now put it on my list. I will also schedule more of a examination and talk about Yalta. I really haven't done it so much on this program. So absent that, I'm not going to say that how I'm going to respond to you is an, a real analysis of Yalta or that I can really differ with your opinion because I haven't looked at it. I just want to point out a few things that might be interesting. I mean, because you can certainly have the viewpoint that you have. And a lot of people do. FDR had no business being in a fourth term, being there at Yalta. He was mesmerized by Stalin. You know, all of these things. But I do think it's just important to, what's the other side to it? And the other side that I've heard is, whatever condition FDR was in, he had two goals at Yalta, and he got both of them. And that was some increased protections for democracy in Poland, which, of course, were ignored, but 
put that aside. He got them. He got them because they had not been secured in Tehran. And a commitment, this is the most important, a commitment on the part of the USSR to terminate its neutrality pact with Japan and to enter the war on the Allied side, which they did. They After Yalta, the Russian government calls in the Japanese ambassador and says, sorry, Mr. Soto, uh, we are out. Germany's now been defeated. You are at war with countries that are allies with us. Our agreement no longer makes sense, and it's terminated. And it's not much longer. It's a couple of months, and Russia will invade Manchuria. A devastating blow to Japan in a couple of ways, because um, it's the actual another power that they hadn't expected to have to fight that they will now have to fight. A power that is much stronger in the Pacific zone than Britain and Mountbatten and and the British Navy and everything were able to get up to speed as quickly. It's more importantly, though, it's crushing to the Japanese military command that Russia breaks the neutrality pact because they were hoping that as a neutral player utilizing the USSR, that Japan could get a better deal, better terms with the Allies. And basically, this is them saying no. However, I know what the argument will be, hey, it's a success that happens to be also cool for Stalin because it's acquisition of territory, it's war, and it's something he's he's ready to do. They set up uh, democratic protections um, in Poland, which are, I mean, not only are they broken, but the Polish leadership, the opposition leadership is rounded up and put in the gulag. And that's a, just the earliest signal that there is something wrong here. And so as um, McMeekin says, it took time for Truman to put his foot down at Potsdam. What he's doing at Potsdam is saying, hey, you violated what you agreed to at Yalta. And what we don't know is if FDR alive would have done the same. I suspect he would be very angry at, at what was going on. Um, totally valid, though, to have this opinion that you know Roosevelt had no business running for a fourth term. It was certainly a position at the time. I mean, each time after 36, so 40 and 44, Franklin Roosevelt's losing more states in that landslide election that he kept having because there's more and more opposition. And in 44, you have Dewey, who's a very younger man who says, I can win the war quicker and things like that. I want to read the McMeekin book. It presents a very interesting thesis from what I've read online that it really was Stalin's war and not so much Hitler's war or Roosevelt's war of anyone else's war. I agree with that in some ways. It also is important here. That's, that's another important point to understand when we analyze Yalta and what was going on. Most of the victory against Germany was achieved by the Soviet Union. That seven out of eight German soldiers were killed by a Soviet soldier. The Soviet army was at this point the strongest in the world. They had occupied all of the lands that are under dispute. So the Allies' only option is to try to seek rights for people within that zone that's occupied by the Soviets and to keep controlling the areas that are under American and British and French control. And other steps are awfully hard to do. So I I just think, you know, some of that context is important to understand. Uh, There was, for instance, considered by Churchill when he started to realize more and more Stalin, yeah, something's wrong here. 
There was considered by British high command the Operation Unthinkable, where they'd actually go to war with Stalin over Poland and attack Soviet troops. And it just, at least from the British side, they just couldn't see it. Going to war with Stalin over this issue at a time when Japan was still alive was difficult. And they thought the USSR and the Japanese would then gang up. A lot going on there. It's a democracy in America. While there was a lot of uh, support for punishing Japan and beating Hitler, you don't necessarily have an appetite in America for more war. Let me address your question now, because your question specifically was about, first of all, Wallace and Garner. Wallace, uh, as I shot an email to you, um, easy to dismiss that. Wallace is was FDR's previous VP. He was more pro-Stalin, say, than um, than anyone. So now will come up in the 48 election when he runs. Garner, I suspect if Garner's president instead of FDR and you get to Yalta, I would expect a Truman-esque type attitude. He's a Texas small-town lawyer, progressive when it comes to, say, banking issues, but on foreign policy and other things, huge government programs. He's going to be conservative, probably skeptical of communists and skeptical of, of Stalin. But also, where he comes from, I am not well-versed in foreign policy and might have to rely on AIDS. So I don't know what happens, you know, in Yalta under that situation. Who else can we look at? Let's look at Jimmy Burns, because if Jimmy Burns was kind of running the end of the war there, and if... um if FDR doesn't run in 44, it probably would not have been Truman or Garner. It probably would have been Jimmy Burns. It's hard to say what he would do. He was at Yalta and he was acting as a, a key aide there. So not much, not much difference. What would Dewey do? You know, these are all interesting what ifs. And I, I don't have an answer for that, but I would just consider, uh, Moving a little away from um, all of it being about, hey, we're just mesmerized or charmed by Stalin or or wowed by his power, and some of it's just real politic. Okay, well, we got to a few uh, listener questions. I was happy to do it. Um, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics is our website. I thank you for listening, and uh, if you can write a review for us, that would be great. Thanks for listening.